Welcome to the inaugural episode of season two of the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Neil Chatterjee. Really excited that the Examiner has brought Plugged In back for another season. In season one, we focused a lot of our interviews on Congress, members of the Senate, members of the House, talking about the critical legislative issues in the energy space today. As we look to 2022, I think a lot of the action is going to pivot to the agencies and the critical work that is being done there. Certainly, my former colleagues at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission have their hands full, but a lot of important work is being done at the Department of Energy. And I'm very excited that for the premiere episode of season two, we've got an outstanding guest in Jigger Shaw, who is the head of the DOE Loan Program Office, or LPO. Jigger is a renowned uh, energy investor and professional who's been at the cutting edge of innovative new clean energy technologies. He is an ideal candidate to be heading this important office, uh, and I'm excited to uh, dig into what you uh, have planned and, and what you, where you see the opportunities uh, in, the, in the year ahead. So, uh, Jigger, thank you for joining uh, the Plugged In Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's jump in a little bit. Um, so just the, we've got uh, our audience, you know, pretty familiar with the energy issues. But, you know, the DOE LPO uh, product of the Energy Policy Act of, of 2005, I believe it was actually a Republican Senator Domenici. Uh, this was sort of his kind of project. Um, and uh, I've, I've noticed uh, in the press and elsewhere lately, uh, big open for business signs that seems to be the message you're putting out there. So, uh, so yeah, tell me about LPO and your plans and, uh, and how you guys are open for business. The Loan Programs Office is famous for the loans that it did during the 2009, 2010, 2011 timeframe. And, you know, even with all of the press that we got, we really assembled about a $35 billion uh, loan portfolio. And we really were instrumental in bringing in private sector capital at scale into utility scale solar, utility scale wind, uh, you know, EV manufacturing through Tesla and uh, battery manufacturing through our Nissan loan uh, and, and, you know, geothermal projects, transmission projects and other things that we did back then. I think that when you move into 2021 and 2022 now, what you're finding is, is that, you know, we really did have that catalytic impact on bringing big finance into this space. Uh, and so folks who have 20 year power purchase agreements and those kinds of things don't really need our help anymore. So now we have an entirely new generation of technologies that are misunderstood, just like those technologies were back then. And so now you're thinking about hydrogen, EV infrastructure rollouts, carbon sequestration and storage, advanced nuclear, right? And you know battery storage gigafactories and, and many more, right? So you've got a lot of these sectors and it's a whole new set of challenges, right? Because you're not going to get 20-year PPAs for for instance, sustainable aviation fuels. And so then the question is, how do you do the underwriting? How do you protect the taxpayers' money? But how do you really catalyze a sector so it can reach that trillion-dollar scale that we all know is needed to decarbonize a sector by 2050? Uh, the financial market looks a lot different today than it did in, in 2009, 2010. There, you're coming on the heels of a global financial crisis. Um, and Quite frankly, investment in clean energy technologies was was still uh, nascent. Today, you know, uh, lenders are awash with cash. We've got this big SPAC boom that is taking place, and you're seeing considerable 
investment made in clean energy. Um, how have those factors, you know, kind of maybe impacted the, the the mission and strategy of the office? The fact that the financial market conditions look a lot differently today than they did back then. In general, um, equity is definitely far more available today than it was uh, in 2009-2010. But I wouldn't say that commercial debt is any more available. I mean, even with all of the, you know, quantitative easing and everything else that's occurred, um, you have way more money on the debt side uh, available than you've got projects to invest in, but only for certain kinds of technologies, only for solar and wind or some of these other types of technologies. If you're um, an EV manufacturing company and you've you know recently spacked and raised $2 billion, there aren't a lot of commercial banks saying, you know what, I'm going to give you a 10-year loan for that factory because your credit rating is still junk, right? By definition, right, just because you've got $2 billion in the bank doesn't mean that a credit rating agency is saying that your business model is going to generate cash flow for the next 10 years because you haven't proven it. So, you know, and so those people still have challenges raising debt. And so the loan program office is their preferred route to figure out how to get debt, whether it's EV manufacturing or critical minerals or some of these other areas. And so I think the loan programs office still provides a really important role there but we're clearly in a lot better position because we can go to these folks and say, well, in the past, you may have only offered us 20% equity, which is the minimum that is required under our statute. But now we're like, mm, you can kind of put in 40% equity and we'll put in 60. So now we've got a bigger cushion with which to protect the taxpayer's money. And they're still getting a great deal because they're being able to get debt uh, to prove the point. And Wall Street banks have said very clearly, look, we really love the quality of your diligence. So if they get through your office, then we're very likely to look at the second loan. Now, I've heard from some folks who are very excited about the prospect of working with you all, but there seems to be some confusion regarding how to bring new good ideas to DOE. Do you have any kind of recommended approaches that can bring new projects to your attention? And you know, what are you guys looking for in projects that are appropriate for DOE funding? Well, I think that, you know, I would say that we're easier to contact than ever, right? I mean, you know, we've got 17 full-time folks in our outreach and business development team, and all of them are seasoned professionals, some of them former CEOs, executives, et cetera, that have decided to come back and serve their country in that spot. And, you know, we've talked to over, I think, a thousand CEOs and companies so far since we've been in office. So, I mean, I think it's pretty easy to come in. So if anyone wants to talk to us, I mean, it's just lpo at hq.doe.gov and they should just reach out because we're pretty responsive to almost anybody. I think what we're looking for is a pretty simple explanation around what they're doing, right? Like give me the two-page you know, business plan, the, the deck that you use to raise venture capital with, whatever it is, like just show me what your business model looks like. How do you make money? right? Because we're not looking to the future, right? Like by definition, we're commercial debt. We look to the past. So, so you know, equity looks to the future. They're looking at, hey, you could be a business that's 10 times bigger, you know, in the future. Great. But you're asking me for money today. I want to know what happened last week, last month, and the last six months. You know, where have your processes failed you? What are your approaches to fixing those processes? And so, you know, we have a different kind of conversation 
a lot of times the CEOs that we talk to are not used to having that conversation. They're used to just talking about the future instead of, uh, you know, like sort of highlighting their warts. But that's how commercial debt works. Um, you know, so you have all sorts of stuff. Now, not all that stuff is going to actually get approved by our office, but everyone's invited to come in. Two of the things that I worked on uh, during my time at, at FERC that I'm particularly proud of were uh, FERC Order 841 to create a market, remove barriers to entry for battery storage technologies, and then FERC Order 2222 to remove those barriers to entry and create a market for aggregated distributed energy resources. When the office was stood up, uh, you know, in the two, you know the late 2009, 2010 era, uh, these technologies weren't really contemplated. Uh, as somebody who would love to see growth in this space, could an aggregated distributed energy resource or a, a DER aggregator come in and apply? No, I think it's a great question. And, you know, I think obviously, I think your leadership on FERC Order 2222 is amazing. And when you think about uh, what it really does is it really says that, look, over 10% of all of the money that we spend in our electricity system is really for resiliency, reliability, and balancing, right? And if we can do that through demand dexterity, then that should have equal footing to supply dexterity, right? And I think that, you know, when you think about uh, what's happened uh, since you've passed that, um, you have a huge increase in the number of appliances uh, that are called connected. I mean, that's really in the last two years. And, and so today you can actually connect your refrigerator to your phone, your water heater to your phone, your thermostat, obviously you've been able to do for a long time and, you know, HVAC heat pumps, but now you've got bi-directional EV charging that's entered the marketplace this year. And so now you're in a position where there's a lot of different loads that people have to be able to feed into the grid. The challenge is, as you know, that aggregation costs a lot of money. Contacting somebody and saying, trust me, I've got your best interest at heart is pretty hard. <laughs> but what's not hard is that we're, we're uh, you know, starting up $1.5 billion of loans a month in the, fi- in the solar financing industry for residential, which often comes with batteries now. That number is going to $5 billion a month as all those platforms are adding uh, HVAC financing to their mix. A couple of them are adding appliance financing. And so what a lot of them are doing is adding a one-page adder to the back of their contract and saying, hey, we'd like the ability to opt you in to these DER programs. And of course, from a consumer protection program perspective, you're always allowed to opt out, but we'd like to be able to opt you in. And people are saying, wait, what is this? They're, they're learning about exactly how FERC Order 2222 will come. And as you know, the first markets are going to be implementing for quarter 2022 this year. And, you know, hopefully the rest of them will implement it by 2025, you know, court challenges notwithstanding. And, and you're going to start to see a flood of these folks coming in simply because one fifteenth of all the appliances in the country are replaced every year, right? And so if you're replacing old appliances with new appliances that are connected, then by definition, you have the ability to do this. And, you know, low moderate income consumers are around 43% of the market. And they also need to buy refrigerators and water heaters, oftentimes in emergency situations, because, you know, usually don't replace it till it breaks. And then when they do that, they're often charged 15 to 30% interest because they take a $750 refrigerator, they're charged $950 for it with a 9.9% interest rate, which net 
is between 15 and 30%, depending on the term of the loan. And so now you're trying to help those folks get into much lower interest rates, pay the 750 for the refrigerator, and get these DER revenues that they can, they're eligible for. And so I think when you think about how all of this gets connected, it's super important. And then the last thing, which you know very well, is that as we move to a huge penetration of electric vehicles, it's just not possible to upgrade the transmission and distribution system to handle um, unregulated demand. And so you need demand regulation where folks make sure that everything isn't plugged in at the exact same time. And that takes, you know, some sophisticated coordination and, and communication. And I think it's one of the exciting things about the energy transition. It's going to have new challenges and obstacles, but great opportunities as well. You probably see more cutting edge concepts in the renewable space than just about anyone. Uh, curious as to what you think the, the next big thing is in, in onshore wind or offshore wind or, or solar. What, what are some of the exciting things you're seeing coming in the door? Well, you know, I think that on the traditional stuff, right, solar and wind, you know, wind turbines are getting bigger. So you've got folks who are proposing custom B-52 bombers that hold these wind turbine blades because you can't actually transport these big blades uh, on, um, the, uh, on the existing highways and rail infrastructure. Uh, and so and by doing that, you get to higher hub heights and you get to, you know, 30, 40% increase in energy production. Um, on the solar side, I think a lot of what you're seeing is integration with battery storage, with uh, green hydrogen, with some of these other things. Because what a lot of the solar guys have recognized is that their quest for PPAs have actually given away too much value, right? The PPAs are 1.8 cents a kilowatt hour. A lot of the wholesale market prices are an average of, let's say, $30 a megawatt hour. And so if they actually just go fully merchant, they'd more, make more revenues. And they would actually be able to afford to put in not just one hour of battery storage, but five hours of battery storage as they game the market and, you know, not sell the power at the lowest possible prices, but at the higher prices during the day. And so I think the level of sophistication that you're seeing out of these folks is very high. And that's what comes from an industry that used to be viewed as sort of the upstart uh, in in the sector, but now is the behemoth, right? I mean, 80% of new capacity additions every year are wind and solar and clean energy. And so they have to take on a much greater responsibility around loading transmission, around adding battery storage, around all of these new responsibilities. And the level of innovation there is very high. One of the things that, uh, that I've been frustrated with has been uh, the politicization of energy. And uh, I've acknowledged I made some missteps when I first came to FERC to contribute to it. And I've done, I'm trying to do my part to walk it back. One would think that this office and its focus uh, and that this notion that if you're for clean energy, you're of the political left. And if you're for fossil fuels, you're of the political right. That's kind of an antiquated notion. There ought to be broad uh, bipartisan support for, for clean energy. Yet you had mentioned, uh, you know, when this office first kind of got into the press, uh, uh, you know, uh, it, it wasn't always that that pretty. Uh, it was around Solyndra and, you know, full disclosure, I was working for Senator, Senator McConnell at the time and we hammered the office pretty hard on that issue. Um, are you concerned at all that, you know, as you guys have to take 
some some risks, and that's the point, right? Is these are risky investments. Um, you know, has the office matured to a point now that you feel insulated from you know future such attacks or another Solyndra? Well, you know, my job is to make the office work, right? The office, as the secretary said during her confirmation hearing, has been dormant for ten years, right? So we're bringing it back, and you know, it's the secretary's job to you know, provide me air cover and all those things that I need to be able to do my job well. And she's frankly hit out of the park when it comes to that. She talks about our office all the time and I think gives us all of the support that we need to continue to, you know, get the resources and the attention, right? Because our applicants don't want to be involved in an office that's politicized either, right? Most of our applicants are not political animals. They're they're capitalist animals, right? They're trying to, you know, tap into the largest wealth creation opportunity of uh, you know the current generation, right? And so when you think about um, the bipartisan nature of this, you and I both know that there are Republicans, Democrats, independents going all in on whether it's electric vehicles or new transmission technologies or carbon capture and sequestration, advanced nuclear, right? Sustainable aviation fuels, because there's a lot of you know money to be made out of this because the Department of Energy spent a huge amount of money on R and D for the last 20, 30 years, a lot of these technologies are ready for prime time. And so I'd say that in general, um, you know, I don't know that I'm an expert on politicization of things, but I am an expert in getting people to use the office. And we're seeing uniform interest in using the office across all congressional districts, all Senate, you know, Senate offices, all states, you know, everybody recognizes that we play this essential role on helping first of a kind deployments, helping deployments two through five before the commercial banks really want to step in with, with both feet. Now you had mentioned that, you know, the office had been dormant for some time, but the last administration uh, did uh, make some, some pretty considerable investments in, in Vogel in the nuclear plant uh, uh, in Georgia. Is that a, a project that uh, DOE still supports? Oh, of course. I mean, when you think about what it takes to bring nuclear power back in this country, I mean, nobody has worked harder on that than Tom Fanning down there. I mean, uh, you know, he has put a lot of his, you know, reputation and, and, and things on the line to get that done. And we think that, you know, that project will get completed and it's going to be, uh, you know, we understand, right? There's a lot of naysayers. There's a lot of folks who, uh, you know, think that the cost overruns were avoidable and all those things. But I think that when you think about bringing nuclear power back, to uh, part of the solution for decarbonization by 2035, it's going to require a lot of training. It's going to require bringing back the entire supply chain. It's going to be require moving to the next generation of small modular reactors. And all of those things are needed to get there. But I mean, you know, the sacrifice that they've made to really kickstart the nuclear market, I mean, it's, it's really important. Pivoting back to, uh, to solar a bit, um, you know, I'd be curious to know what you think the office can do uh, to, to broaden consumer access and enable kind of new customer segments to have uh, access to capital to invest in, in solar. I, I get that uh, LPO uh, has got a lot of large scale development requests, but what about individual consumers? Is there a way for the office to help there and, and get some more of the solar out? Yeah, I think that that is tied to the FERC Order 2222 work that we talked about, which is that a lot of this loan volume is already happening, but they're limiting themselves to 680 FICO score and above. 
And a lot of what we're doing is two things, right? One is we're encouraging the fi finance platforms to uh, market to all Americans because so far they haven't. They've picked certain nine-digit zip codes to market to, and they're realizing they've left a lot of people behind as a result. And so we're helping them with that, and we're helping them with moving to lower FICO scores uh, because Wall Street um, is estimating defaults to be double what we found in practice to be um, you know, the, 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 the realized experience out of the data. And so there's a lot of work that we're doing to make sure that these technologies get to all Americans. And the other thing that you're finding is, is that when you're putting in solar and battery storage, it's easy to put in a smart thermostat. It's easy to help uh, the homeowner actually participate in more demand flexibility markets than they were anticipating just with their battery. Uh, how concerned are you uh, about the current supply chain obstacles and, and the impact that they're having on constraining uh, clean power development, whether it be access to critical minerals or, you know, questions around tariffs uh, uh, on solar equipment? Uh, is that uh, impacting your, uh, your, your focus and strategy at all? Well, I mean, certainly when we think about where the opportunities are for people to use the loan programs office, uh, the last administration did a great job of, of making sure that they added critical minerals to our uh, mandate. Um, and then we uh, substantially enhanced it when I came into office. And now we've got several billion dollars worth of applications in the loan programs office for critical minerals with a couple more billion pending, uh, you know, that people are actively putting together. And I think when you think about the broader macro, uh, whether it's trade tariffs or all these things, look, I think, that, I think that one of the reasons why Tesla was so successful in the United States is that they weren't making cars in another country and importing them into the United States, right? That they really were an American car company. And I think that when you think about the scale at which we're going to be investing in clean energy in this country, Americans expect a lot of the supply chain to be brought back here to the United States. And so you're seeing a lot of policies put in place to encourage that. And I think that, you know, after, um, you know, all of the different complexities and struggles that the solar and wind industry have gone through, I think you're seeing a renewed commitment on those industries as well as others to really bring the supply chain here for no other reason than it reduces the complexity of their businesses. And so I think you're going to see big announcements this year and next year around folks that are going to be you know, manufacturing here domestically and, and mining a lot of those critical minerals here domestically as well. That's great. Um, in terms of uh, uh, one of the big issues in the energy landscape right now, my former colleagues are, 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 are neck deep in uh, looking at transmission and seeing how we can get the necessary transmission that we need for the grid of the future uh, in place. And, and FERC's doing considerable work there. Um, for cost-based transmission projects, um, you know, uh, uh, what is the role of, of LPO here? And, and, and can you guys play a role in, in getting some of this transmission that is so needed in place? Well, certainly the bipartisan infrastructure law gave the Department of Energy broader powers to help deal with, you know, some of the complexities of working with individual state PUCs and, and other jurisdictions. That being said, I think you and I both know that part of the reason why natural gas pipelines go in really fast is because they're underground, right? And you know, building a lot of these things overhead 
uh, is difficult, right? People don't want to see them. And, you know, a lot of states are resent the fact that they've got to rate base the cost of some of these things, even if they're not benefiting fully from uh, the power, right? And so, so I think part of what you're seeing in the administration is announced this when they first came into office is, you know, um, a freeing up of the right of ways for the federal highways, as well as on rail infrastructure, and really getting people to look at how we can do um, transmission more predictably, right, which may mean that it's more expensive, right, because you got to underground parts of that, etc. But I think people are recognizing that predictability can be more important than spending 12 years getting the lowest possible cost per mile on this transmission. And then it, of course, not being relevant because no one can depend on it being constructed. And so I think there's an entirely new equation coming about in people's heads around what it's going to take to build transmission in a predictable way. I mean, this gets into some really complicated questions. Like, I guess, how do you envision a utility paying back the loan? Would would it bake it into... To need to bake it into the rates? Well, certainly there are many benefits from added transmission, right? You have resiliency benefits, you have uh, clean energy benefits, you have uh, you know, other benefits as well. But the other piece of it is that you know, if the Congress wants to support uh, faster transmission, it can also support it with financial incentives, right? Like tax credits and grant programs and other things that are available. So they can pay for some of that speed premium through those financial incentives. And, you know, certainly there's been a lot of uh, talk around, uh, around doing that, right? So, so I think there are many ways to solve the problem. I think the first thing is there has to be a recognition that we actually need this transmission and that this transmission would lead to less outages in our country, right? I mean, as you know, uh, of all of the OECD countries in the United, in the world, right? We have the leading amount of of time that people have without power, and that seems unacceptable. I mean, it seems like in the United States of America, particularly when people are working from home and have all these other like you know Zoom school and other responsibilities. It's not just broadband that we need to bring to everybody. Which yes, we need to do that. We also need to make sure that people are not waiting six months for a Generac generator, which is what it costs $32,000 in six months of waiting, because they don't believe that the grid's reliable. Uh, speaking of working from home, you've, uh, you've been on the job for about a year now. H- have you gone into the Forestall building yet, or have you been working remotely? I have gone in four times. So, you know, not very many. <laughs> uh, I, do, I do think that we're going to be going in here pretty soon. And so I'm excited to go into the office and, you know, I've got a good view of the castle. And so um, I'm excited to, you know, see my colleagues and, uh, and be able to, uh, you know, mentor young folks in the office. I mean, that's part of the part that I really uh, feel is missing during these COVID times is we've got a lot of young people working for, for us in our office. And, you know, some of the benefits that they get is not just doing the work, but also, you know, being mentored. And uh, we've been able to not be able to do that. I tell young folks that all the time who have gotten accustomed to working from home. You know, people ask me, how, how did you get to where you are in your career? I said, because people took an interest in me and, and helped me grow. And you kind of got to be there to develop and forge those relationships. I think that's great. Uh, final question. Uh, obviously, uh, we are uh, just learning of the, the retirement of uh, the football goat, Tom Brady. 
Yeah. Straight. Greatest athlete of all time, Michael Jordan or Tom Brady? Well, look, I mean, I think that when you think about each individual athlete, you got to judge them in their time period. I think when you think about the role that sports science played during the Jordan era versus the Brady era, I mean, you know, like they were in their infancy in sports science in the 90s, right? And for Jordan to play at that level, uh, where he was really head and shoulders above all of his peers. Um, you know, I mean, I just think it's extraordinary, right? Like he didn't have cameras with AI that like, you know, perfected his game. He like just shot 10,000 shots, right? He learned how to go left and right, right? I mean, it's, it's, it boggles my mind how many ways uh, we can be judged and introspected Today, right, you can actually have computer AI software and all sorts of people tell you how you could have done better. He didn't have any of that. He had VHS tapes. And uh, I feel like I feel like you got to give it up to Jordan, given the level of technology he pretty, had. It's a time. pretty compelling argument. I love how you work technology into it. Well, thank you uh, for joining the Plugged In podcast. But more importantly, uh, thank you for your service. Uh, you know, I think regardless of where people stand on the issues of the day, or uh, uh, on, on politics, what side of the aisle you're on. Uh, at the end of the day, we need good people to serve the country. And the fact that you were very successful uh, in the private sector and that you gave that up to come in and make this office work, uh, it, it's really a, a patriotic thing to do. And so uh, thank you for your service. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Good luck. Uh, and, uh, uh, I don't know that this is as good as the energy gang podcast, but hopefully uh, our listeners will find it entertaining. Uh, thank you for joining. Well, I think it's amazing. And thanks for having me. And thanks for really making sure that people understand that this really is a large wealth creation opportunity for all Americans. Right. And so, so this really is about all of the technologies that we need to get there. And that's nuclear carbon sequestration, hydrogen, all sorts of technologies. And, I just, I just really appreciate you taking the time to educate folks around the country on these issues because it's thankless work, and I just really appreciate how much effort you put into it. Thanks again for listening to Season 2 of the Plugged In Podcast. New episodes will be available on Tuesdays at noon Eastern Time. You can also keep up with all things energy by following the Washington Examiner on all of our social media channels and subscribing to the Daily on Energy newsletter written by yours truly, Jeremy Beeman.